Recently, we've been reading through stories of the Old Testament at home, and uh, my daughter Hannah especially loves some of these stories. In fact, one of her favorite stories is from Judges chapter 3, and it's this very odd and weird story of this fat king named Eglon, and I won't go into all the details of it. In fact, I would say to you, if you don't know what story I'm talking about, you should read it. It's, we've had a lot of fun with it because it has everything a good story should have. There's a good guy and a bad guy. There's adventure. There's potty humor even, and so there's, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, do yourself a favor and read the story. So she loves that, and, and this week I came across another story, an odd foreign story in Judges chapter 1. And in Judges chapter 1, the story is that Israel is fighting the Canaanites. And the backstory on the people of the Canaanites is these are not good people. This is a wicked people, a people who have been uh, worshiping demons, a people who have been offering their children, their babies, as sacrifices to these false gods. So they're literally killing and burning their babies to these false gods. And Israel's fighting this wicked people, and they capture their wicked king. And in Judges 1, it says that when they captured this wicked king, what they did is they cut off his thumbs and they cut off his toes. So it's an odd, peculiar story. You're not really sure what's going on. But apparently there was this effective ancient custom where you cut off this defeated king's toes and thumbs. And the idea was when you cut off his toes, he would never be able to stand tall and fight again. He could never go toe-to-toe with you again. you get that? I wrote that in my notes. He could never go toe-to-toe with you. I thought that was good. He, 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 they cut off his thumb so that he could never hold a sword again. And they, they not only defeated this king, they disgraced him so that no one would ever join his army again. He would never rise up and rule again. And they paraded this thumbless, toeless, defeated foe back to Israel. And after everyone saw him, he spent his days and he died. Now, that's what comes to my mind, because what Israel did to their enemy is sort of what Colossians 2 says that God does to his enemy. What Israel did to their enemy is what Colossians 2.15, the passage that Susan read for us, tells us that God did to his enemy. Colossians 2.15 says this, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. And you need to know, rulers and authorities is this term in the New Testament, the second half of our Bibles, that's used to speak of the evil one, of Satan and the demons and the devil. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so what this verse in Colossians would have us consider today is the triumph of God over Satan, particularly through the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, if I could boil down what we're trying to communicate today, it'd be this. Jesus has defeated, disarmed, and disgraced the devil. If I could communicate to you in one sentence what I'm trying to say to you today, it's that Jesus has disarmed and defeated and disgraced the devil. Right? Like, like we told our kids, every good story has a good guy and a bad guy. Where there's Superman, there's Lex Luthor. Where there's Batman, there's Joker. Where there's Philly, there's Dallas. And slightly worse than Dallas is the devil, right? <laughs> so I recognize, I, I recognize that in a room like this, when we talk about the devil, I do recognize that we could be coming at that conversation from very different places. 
It's one of the things that makes life and ministry in this church both challenging and so much fun, which is that we could be coming at this conversation from very opposite sides of the field. For example, some of you grew up in church. You grew up around religion. You grew up reading the Bible. And so when a preacher stands up and talks to you about the devil, you don't get weirded out. You don't get skeeved out. You just assume that's right. There is a devil. And in fact, for some of you, the risk, if there is one, is not that you don't believe that the devil exists anywhere, but that you almost see the devil everywhere. Right? If Christians trip up on this, sometimes it's that we see the devil behind everything. Everything not only evil and wicked and suffering and bad, we see him behind every inconvenience, every misstep. It's the devil that did it. The reason you're late to work is the devil's after you. And the reason you failed that exam is not because you didn't study, but it's because the devil's out to get you. And the devil's behind everything inconvenient, everything bad, and and behind country music, and everything you don't like (laughs) is, that last one might be true, is the devil, right? And for you, what I'd say to you is, uh, I read a, a short, simple book this week called the Div- Did the Devil Make Me Do It? by a man named Mike McKinley, some 70 pages long. It, I, I'd commend that to you, five bucks on Amazon, as just sort of a primer, an introduction to thinking through this so that you might not think too much or too little, but might think biblically about it. Now, on the other hand, if you're here and you're like most of the people in our city and in our neighborhood, you didn't grow up in church. You didn't grow up around the Bible. And so when you hear a preacher stand up and say, the devil, part of you wants to say, come on, it's 2015. You seriously don't really believe in a bad guy in red tights with a pitchfork and the horns. You couldn't possibly believe that, could you? And and at that point, we'd say, no, we don't believe in that either. But we do believe that the scriptures teach for us that there is an enemy of God who hates God and hates us. For you, if the risk is any, it's that not that you believe the devil is everywhere, but that you've sort of convinced yourself that the devil is nowhere, that he doesn't exist. It's like that famous line in the good movie, The Usual Suspects, right? The the famous line is that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world he doesn't exist, right? And so rather than these extremes that we can tend to, in fact, there's a quote by a theologian, a well-known man named C.S. Lewis. Uh, Listen to what he says. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall concerning the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Right? One is to think too little or to think too much. And in between these two extremes, the Bible comes and presents to us the simple reality that there is a good God who loves us, And there is a wicked adversary. In fact, that's what Satan literally means, adversary. There is a wicked adversary who hates us. But the good news is that our God has defeated and disarmed and disgraced this enemy. Right? The the scriptures tell us that these two are opposites, but I need you to hear this too. They're not equal opposites. Right? You, You should know that. This is not an equal power struggle between a good God and a wicked, evil Satan. They're opposites, but they're not equal. In fact, Colossians has already told us this because Colossians says God is the creator of everything. He's over and above everything, including the devil. In fact, you see this in Colossians 1, verse 16. Let me just remind you, we talked through this. For by him, that's Jesus, 
All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And here's our phrase. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, as in the heavenly realm and hosts, all things were created through him and for him. See, Paul's writing this letter to the Colossians because the Colossians were wondering about all these other powers between God and man. All these sort of in-between powers. And Paul's writing to them to convince them of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And here he wants to say, Jesus is not only above them all, he made them all. Including the one that we know as our enemy now. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we would probably want to know about the evil one. But it does tell us everything we need to know about the evil one. Right? We're not privy to every curiosity of ours, but we are privy to everything we need to know. And what the scriptures tell us is that Jesus made everything, including the angels. And then other parts of the Bible, like 2 Peter and the letter of Jude, comes along and adds to us that sometime after Jesus made everything, there was a rebellion in the heavens. That this group of angels sinned against God, not satisfied with their position, and that there was this rebellion, this sin, led principally by one angel called, now who we call Satan, or the devil. And that from then on, Satan and the other angels who sinned, or the demons, or the evil one, are in this one agenda, which is to oppose God and his purposes at every point. Right, that, that, that the evil one's one agenda is to oppose God and his good purposes and plans at every point. And so there's this battle in the heavens, and the scriptures tell us that the enemy is cast down, and suddenly the battlefield shifts from the heavens to the earth. And that's what we come across in Genesis chapter 3. So if you, for example, started reading your Bible... If this was your first time ever reading the Bible, and you started at the first page, in the first page you have this good God that made this good earth. And in the second page you have this good God that made this good earth, and everything is very good. And then almost without explanation, just abruptly in chapter 3, you're introduced to some rebel force, some traitor that crawls into the garden. We're introduced to what's called the serpent, or Satan, or the devil. And in chapter 3, where everything was going good, suddenly you find that the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, who were made in God's image and likeness, who were given authority by God to rule over everything God made. You think of that. They were given authority under God to rule over all of God's creation. And this created being comes to them. And what they should have done was battle that serpent at that tree. And instead, if you've ever read Genesis 3, you know that rather than battling and overcoming the evil one, they join the evil one. And what happens in that moment is they join the side of the rebellion so that every son of Adam, down to every man in this room, and every daughter of Eve, down to every woman in this room, is born into that rebellion, born on the side of the evil one, born from the first moment you took your breath, at enmity, at odds, in opposition with God. And every page of the scriptures thereafter, as you keep reading the story, and I want you to know, if you're new to the Bible, the Bible's not just a book of rules. What the Bible is, is a story. It's the story of God and His people. And every page of the story after Genesis 3 is sort of unpacking what life 
under the tyranny of this evil one looks like. What it looks like to live in the rebellion. What it looks like to live under sin. What it looks like to be ruled by this wicked king. And all the pages of the scripture begin to unpack for you what life under him is like. And the Bible doesn't hide the works of the evil one. So for example, when Jesus shows up in John chapter 8, he tells us that the evil one is a murderer and a liar. In fact, he says he's the father of lies. In fact, the scripture says when he speaks, he speaks lies because lying is his native tongue. You think of that. If you're bilingual, you've got this first language that just comes out. Well, the language of the evil one that just comes out is lying. That's his native tongue. He's a murderer and a liar. The Gospels, as you read the stories of the Gospels, you find out not only is this evil one opposed to God, he oppresses man. And so you'll see stories of mental and physical oppression, people who are oppression, who are demonized and terrorized by the evil one. If you read the epistles, that is the letter of the apostles all throughout the New Testament, you find that the enemy loves to sow seeds of discord among God's people, create division and strife and malice. And so those relational problems we find ourselves having with others stem from an evil one who is in the world and from our sin born from his works. If you keep reading, one of the things you'll see in Old Testament and New is that the devil is referred to as an accuser of God's people. In fact, if I could linger out one of these things that the enemy does, that'd be the one I want you to think about. The scriptures tell us from both old and new that he's an accuser of God's people. One of the scenes in the Bible that brought that to me in vivid sort of picture is this, is this scene from Zechariah 3. Zechariah is tucked into the Old Testament. In fact, when I first heard it, I was at a church service at Epiphany Church in North Philly. And, and we were singing about Jesus, our high priest. And in the middle of the song, the worship leader cut the song and just started teaching on Zechariah. It was very odd to me, very striking, but one that sort of tattooed in my brain and I never forget it now. And the scene he taught us in Zechariah 3, in fact, let me just read you the first verse. It's this vision he has of this high priest. This is what Zechariah 3 verse 1 says. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. He showed me, so here, here's what Zechariah 3 is. You see this vision of Joshua, this man named Joshua, who's the high priest. Now a high priest was no small thing. If you're not familiar with it, in the Old Testament, in Israel, you had this high priest. It was this one man, once a year, who was allowed to go into the most holy place of Israel's temple. And what he was supposed to do is he was supposed to be sort of a mediator between God and man. He was supposed to represent people to God. And so he was supposed to make this sacrifice saying, Oh God, I'm coming to you bearing all the people as if it were on my shoulders. And so you'd, you'd imagine this should be a very holy, godly, pure man who's got this incredible task, one man, once a year, who gets to go before God. Well, in the vision, Zechariah says, I saw Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord, and there right next to him, at his right side, stood Satan to accuse him. And as you keep reading the vision, here's the worst part. The worst part is Satan has a case. He's not just making empty accusations. Satan has a case. It's the one time the liar tells the truth is about us. Because we really do have sin. 
He doesn't have to lie about that. It, it's actually the one time he can tell the truth because we're standing in sin. In fact, when you read the vision in Zechariah 3, what you see is Zechariah sees Joshua the high priest, Satan standing there, and Zechariah is clothed in filth. In fact, he's literally clothed in crap. And I'm not being crass there. He's literally clothed in human excrement. That's the vision of the high priest of Israel standing before God. And he's literally covered from head to toe in excrement. And so Satan is standing there ready to accuse. And he has a case. See, this is the picture in the Bible. We have this bully that no one has ever been able to beat. He's literally undefeated. There is on earth none who are his equal. Except that one came from above the earth, into the earth. And one came, one child was born, who as we taught the children, is the hero of the Bible. And back in Genesis, seconds after Adam and Eve joined the rebellion, we see this wonderful promise it's tucked away in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, theologians and Bible scholars call it the first gospel. It's the first announcement of the gospel. In Genesis 3.15, God is cursing this serpent for what he has done. And in that curse, he says, listen, you may have done this, but I want you to know there is now going to be enmity between you and the seed of the woman. Meaning there's going to be a battle now between you and your line and between the woman's line. And there will be one seed of the woman, one child who will come, and you will strike his heel and he will strike your head. Here's the promise. There's coming one, and I, I, I know you're going to get at him. You're going to nip at his heel, but I'm going to tell you he's going to crush your head. Now, I want you to hear that. If I told you I'm going to take a pole and I'm going to swing it as hard as I can. You've got two choices, heel or head. Heel, right? Heel or head. So God is saying, you are going to strike his heel, no doubt. But this is not going to end well for you. Because he is going to crush your head. And the moment Jesus is born, the fight begins. Literally, the moment he comes out of the womb... Before he's two years old, there's this plot to do what? To snuff Jesus out. And behind this king named Herod and his murderous rage to kill all the babies, you can almost hear the hiss of the serpent that is trying whatever it can to snuff Jesus out. Except the two-year-old Jesus escapes. And suddenly hope begins to grow in your heart going, he could be the one. And the moment Jesus, now 30 years old, steps into ministry... And, and, and two seconds after he gets baptized, he steps into the wilderness and who shows up? But the serpent, ready to continue this battle, to do this fight. And Jesus, if you know the story, is in the wilderness and he's been fasting. And for 40 days and nights, he's been fasting, not eating a thing. And the enemy comes to him to tempt him, to tell him to eat some food. And you think of the contrast. If you've read the Bible story, you see Adam and Eve. God's chosen ones, in the garden, belly full, food everywhere, a lush garden. And serpent tempts them with food and they devour it. 
So then how much more is God's chosen one, except he's in the wilderness, dry and arid, no lushness, nothing around. His belly is empty. And the serpent comes and tempts him with food. And yet he triumphs. And suddenly you begin to realize where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded, and hope begins to grow in your heart going, this could be the one. And in every city where this Jesus goes and as he preaches the gospel, guess who shows up? In this demon-possessed man or this oppressed boy, one demon after another. And Jesus in the gospels has never met a demon that he did not cast out. Every time he casts them out and the demons obey the voice of this powerful Jesus. And the battle continues and culminates all the way until the hours before his cross. And you think of that. Satan, it says, came through one of Jesus' closest friends. So that literally this man named Peter at one moment goes, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, flesh and blood didn't tell you that, Peter. You are the rock. My father revealed that to you. And literally a few seconds later, Peter goes, but you can't die on the cross. And Jesus says, Peter, I hear the hiss behind what you're saying. These aren't just your words. Get behind me, Satan. And if every other attempt didn't work, finally it's as if almost this evil one in this suicidal rage figures he's going to make this as bad as he can for the Christ. And so he fills the heart of one of Jesus' own. You think of that. Not the 5,000 and some stranger in a crowd. Not the 120 disciples. Not the 72 that Jesus sent out. From among Jesus' 12, the scripture says Satan filled the heart of this one man who is known in all history as the traitor. And Judas goes and kisses Jesus' cheek as he betrays him. Filling the heart is Satan of this man. And the battle between Jesus and the evil one culminates and climaxes in the cross. And hear me, Samarot. If there was ever a picture of what looked like sure defeat, it was there. Uh, you, you just hear this. Consider the cross, but here's what I want you to hear. Not only did Satan not defeat Jesus at the cross, at the cross, God cut off his thumbs and cut off his toes, as it were. Hear it again, verse 13 through 15 of Colossians. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and then pay attention again. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So here's what I want you to see. Would you for a moment look at the cross of Jesus Christ with me? Close your eyes if you've got to, but in your mind's eye, would you see with me Jesus on the cross? Would you see what looked like total defeat? Would you see for a moment Jesus beaten so bad you could hardly recognize his face? In fact, the prophets tell us he was disfigured to the point that you didn't even know he was a human being. Could you see him there bleeding, struggling for breath, tears flowing down his face? Could you hear his voice cracking, whimpering, maybe even crying in pain? Could you see the Father forsaking him? Could you even look at him? And then, here's what I want you to understand. 
It's almost like you can't even look at him because we forget he was stripped nude. The honest truth is you'd have a hard time if you were there at Calvary looking at him because you would feel shame. You wouldn't even know if you were allowed to look at him because down to his most private parts, he was exposed, hung there. If ever there was a picture on display for all the world to see of public humiliation, here it was. Yet Sevmah Road, here is the beautiful striking irony that while Jesus was being undone by Satan temporarily, Jesus was undoing Satan permanently. The beautiful irony of that scene is that while Satan is striking Jesus' heel, in that same moment, Jesus is crushing Satan's head. The hour of Jesus' worst defeat is the hour of Jesus' greatest victory. And the hour that looked like Satan's greatest victory is the hour of Satan's greatest defeat. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Would you pay attention to that word, disarmed? In fact, in the original language, that word is he stripped. He stripped Satan at the cross. Would you think of that? He stripped Satan. So, so see it in your mind. Satan is standing against us like he stood against Joshua the high priest. And he's got papers in his hand, a case against us, a record of your every sin, my every misdeed, your every crime. He's got the record, and he's not lying. He has a case against you. He's ready to stand, ready to accuse us. We are guilty. But would you remember what Pastor Binu taught us last week in verse 14? That while there is this record of our debt that Satan has over and against us, do you remember that verse 14 said that on the cross what happened? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So here's what Jesus did. Jesus literally stripped the enemy of that record of debt and nailed it to the cross so that now Satan is standing empty-handed with nothing to accuse you of. Would you think of that? Your every record of debt has been nailed to the cross. It's paid. It's done. You have no more debt. I told you a few months ago, Shainu and I received in the mail the greatest piece of mail we've received in 10 years. 10 years we've been paying off student loans. We got a letter from the student loan office that said, congratulations, Ajay and Shainu Thomas, your debt has been paid in full. That's not even Christian language I'm using. That's literally the first sentence of the letter. It said, your debt has been paid in full. And so now, if any creditor or collector ever calls, ever chirps in my ear, I say, I got a letter that says my debt has been paid in full. You have no debt over me. You have no case against me. My debt has been paid in full. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, when Satan used to accuse him, accuse his soul, chirp in his ears, he would say, go on, list every sin. And then he'd say, no, Satan, you forgot some, and he'd remind him of some of his sins. And then he'd say, now above all of that right paid in full. Because that's what Jesus did. That on the cross, Jesus stripped, he disarmed the evil one of that which the evil one had over and against us. He stripped him of all his power and all his authority so that he has no power over those who now belong to Jesus Christ. Would you think of that? There is no case to be made about you. 
What is Satan going to inform Jesus about that he doesn't already know? That he hasn't already forgiven? What new information is the evil one going to bring to God's ear about you? If you're standing here today feeling condemned, I want you to hear Jesus disarmed the evil one at the cross and stripped him of his power. You picture what Jesus did on that cross was punch the serpent in the mouth till his fangs went down his stomach. And he defanged the serpent. We fight now a toothless lion because Jesus has victory over him. It's an amazing thing. This word disarmed. The one other place I see it or that scholars tell us is in Matthew 27. The same phrase is used, except in Matthew 27, it's the phrase used when the soldiers strip Jesus. You think of that? The soldiers disarm Jesus. They strip Jesus. And when you put that together with Colossians 2, the wonderful thought is that though evil was able to temporarily strip Jesus, he rose again and is clothed now never to be shamed again. And yet while they stripped Jesus temporarily, Jesus was stripping the evil one permanently. He disarmed the evil one. But not only that, the verse goes on to say, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So what the verse is saying is, not only did Jesus defeat the evil one and disarm the evil one, he's disgraced the evil one also. He put them, do you see, to public shame. Uh, One more time, the only other phrase, the only other time in the New Testament this phrase is used, this putting to public shame, is in the Gospels when Joseph doesn't want to divorce Mary. If you know the story, he's engaged to Mary. She is with child, conceived by the Holy Spirit because she's going to give birth to Jesus. Well, you don't know that, and if you find out your fiancé is pregnant, Joseph, being a righteous man, wanted to divorce her quietly so as not to put her to open shame. Yet that's the same phrase here used to say, that's what Jesus did to Satan. He put this man, this evil one, on public display permanently for everyone to see. You think of that too. That's good news. You have to hear it in your ear. You think of how hard the evil one works to shame you. How hard does the evil one work to shame God's Son? And yet... It is the evil one who is permanently on display, put to open shame. By triumphing over them, the verse says, in him. And this verse triumphing, here's the last thing I want you to hear about these verses. This idea of triumphing, what Paul is doing is he's borrowing a a scene, something that the Colossians would have known well. The idea of triumph was the Roman idea of a parade. So, in Rome, before the day of Instagram and and Twitter and and Facebook, where you could broadly publicize, if Rome wanted everyone to know how strong they were, what they did was after an enemy was defeated, they threw a parade. In fact, I went and read some of the early accounts from the early centuries. What they did was they basically had a circus in the streets, and every citizen of Rome came out. And what you'd do is you'd have the army victorious march. And after the army, you'd have the spoils of war, all the things you captured. And then you'd have at the back of the parade this triumphant general in his chariot, four horses riding ahead and him going. And chained behind his chariot was the defeated king, stripped of his royal robes, 
de-graced, disgraced in every way, stripped of his crown. And now he was paraded through the streets as an emblem of Rome's victory over their enemy. And hear this. When that happened, even the weakest, smallest citizen of Rome had no more reason to tremble at that king. Even the weakest, smallest citizen of Rome, the little's child, had victory now because a general secured it for them. So it is for all who are in Christ Jesus that not only did he defeat Satan, and not only did he disarm him and strip him, and not only that, but he disgraced him, putting him to open shame. Now, if you've been following with me, I think one of the questions you've got to at least be wondering is, why does our world look the way it does if all of this is true? If all of this is true, if he's been defeated and he's been disarmed and he's been disgraced, why does our world look the way it does with all the evil that abounds? Here's one illustration I tell you. If you, if you read about or learn about World War II, one of the bloodiest wars in World War II was called the Battle of the Bulge. Lives lost like no other. And yet the irony is that battle took place when everybody in the world knew that Germany was done. That battle took place after D-Day, after the storming of Normandy, after the invasion, after everybody in the world knew the Allies were closing in, Germany was done. But does Hitler throw up a white flag, surrender, say, I'm sorry? No, in this suicidal rage, literally suicidal, he seeks to cause as much havoc as he can before he's on his way out. So likewise, pastors have said, Jesus has chopped the head off this serpent. And he's bleeding out and he's dying, but for now, he is swiping his talons as much as he can. But you be sure, his end is near. His doom is sure. And so though he seeks to wreak havoc, Jesus has defeated and disarmed and disgraced our enemy, and we have victory in him. Here's the last thing I want you to hear if you're here. And how do you apply this? In the garden, when Adam and Eve fell, moments later, what they felt was guilt, fear, and shame. Would you think of that? Right? The moment that they sinned, they felt guilt because they knew what they did was wrong. They felt fear. Do you remember they went and hid from God? And if you've read the story, they felt shame. They suddenly covered themselves with fig leaves because they were trying to hide their nakedness. That's what Satan produces in the world and in your life. And if you're here, whether you're a Christian or not, if you're here and you're heavy laden with guilt, if even today the enemy is chirping in your ear about what you have done, would you hear this good news? Jesus Christ has stripped him of his case against you. There is no accusation against you to make. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has disarmed the evil one. He has nailed your record of sins to the cross. You do not have to live under guilt anymore. If you're here and you're living in fear, would you hear me? If there's one thing I could identify with, it would be that one. 
I feel like over these six years of church planting, since entering into this ministry, I feel like a giant bullseye has been put on my chest. And I feel spiritual warfare in a way that I've never felt before. And throughout this week, if there's one thing God brought me to, it was I need to admit I'm afraid. I'm afraid of this evil one and what he could do. And this week I had to repent of that and go, I need to believe what the Colossians needed to believe that Jesus Christ is supreme over every other power. And so there is no need to fear. I want you to hear, we walk cautiously, we walk alertly, we walk vigilantly, but we do not walk fearfully of the evil one because we have confidence that Jesus punched his teeth in, that Jesus has cut off the head of the serpent and crushed his head. And if you're here and you're in shame, If you could go, I get Joshua the high priest. I don't want anyone coming near me. I don't want anyone seeing who I really am. Because if they did, they would see that I am filled with filth. Filled with filth. I want you to hear there's good news for you too. The good news for you this morning is that if you keep reading Joshua's story in Zechariah 3, you know what the vision goes on? They strip him of those filthy garments. And they clothe him in the finest linen. They put a clean turban on his head and he stands there now before God. And so the good news for you is that Jesus Christ was stripped to bear your shame. Hebrews tells us he despised your shame, meaning he hated your shame more than you do. And so Jesus Christ bore your shame and was stripped so that you might be clothed in His righteousness. So that now when the Father looks at you, He sees you in His Son, covered with Jesus Himself. And what Jesus did on the cross was strip Satan permanently. And so you and I need to believe in our hearts that there is now no more guilt, no more fear, no more shame, because Jesus has defeated and disarmed and disgraced the evil one. In a moment, we're going to sing a song together. And to whet your appetite for that song, I want to read you just the lyrics so that when we sing it, you might sing it as unashamed, fearless, guilt-free, confident people. Every one of us should scream like Dennis when we sing this song, okay? So to that end, would you hear these lyrics one more time? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. But it goes on. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing, Do you ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, meaning Lord of hosts, His name. From age to age the same, and He must win the battle. One last one. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. 
One little word shall fell him. And what is that one little word that topples the evil one? Jesus. Let's pray. Our 